March 15th, 44 BC. That's right, ancient times. There's a Senate meeting in Rome, and Caesar, the most powerful man in the Republic, is late. When he arrives, he is immediately surrounded. The senators pull daggers from beneath their togas and stab Caesar. Within minutes, he lies dead in a pool of blood. The assassination of Julius Caesar has showed up in a Shakespeare play, an Elizabeth Taylor movie, George Clooney even played Caesar once. That's the fiction. But the facts are even wilder. There is an illegitimate love child, an accidental murder, and the fall of the ancient world's most powerful man. I'm Sally Helm, and this is History This Week. Today, the Ides of March are upon us. Why do we tell this story over and over? And what really happened on the Ides of March? To learn the true story of Caesar's death, we wanted to talk to someone who has the facts of ancient history down pat. So we called Professor Barry Strauss. I'm an author and professor of history and classics at Cornell University. And so you study the ancient world. You have a podcast about it that is called Antiquitas. Would it be fair to say that you are obsessed with the ancient world? I'm into the ancient world, yes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. What is it about it, do you think? Well, you know, it's kind of like a dress rehearsal for the world we live in. The Greeks and the Romans are so much like us, and yet they're so different from us. I mean, they were pretty blunt about things, and there are ways nowadays in which we tend to sugarcoat things or paper things over. And when we see things in their world, we can say, oh, that's really what it's all about. So today, we're going to have you help us sort through the real story behind this event that has become so legendary the Ides of March. Let's go back and talk about the events that led up to this. So what was happening in Rome? The Roman Republic had been on the ropes for a long time. For nearly a century, there had been a series of civil disputes, assassinations, violent riots, and civil wars. The Republic was becoming an empire, and that led to power struggles. People were asking, how much power should the elites have? How about the ordinary people? And who will be in charge? In the most recent civil war, one politician had come out on top, Julius Caesar. When Caesar came back to Rome at the end of the civil war, he'd already been a dictator for 10 years. And then in February of 44 BC, he had himself declared dictator in perpetuo, in essence, dictator for life, something that had never existed in Rome before and shocked many people. Many of Caesar's associates said, whoa, we didn't sign up for this. We agreed to follow Caesar and to see him be the dominant person in the Roman Republic, but we didn't sign up to establish a Roman monarchy. 
Because Rome is a republic, and they're proud of that. They had a king once, a guy named Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, and they threw him out. For the roughly 500 years since, the Roman citizens have been pretty clear that they do not want a king. But Caesar is looking more and more king-ish. Caesar revived some of the ways in which those old-time kings of Rome dressed. For instance, they wore these particular high boots, and he starts wearing these boots. He gets the right to sit on a gold and ivory throne in public. Either his friends or his opponents, depending on the story that we believe, have him declared a god. Literally? Yeah, literally. So he's going to be deified. He's going to be worshipped as a god. It's sort of the equivalent to being a, somewhere between being a superstar and being a divinity. But it's very disturbing to a lot of people. The other thing that disturbs a whole lot of people is that Caesar's a ladies' man. He's had many, many affairs. But the most notorious one is with a queen, the queen of Egypt, none other than Cleopatra. Hmm. Heard of her. Over the years, this has been a romantic part of the Caesar story. He helped Cleopatra gain control in Egypt, and then they spent a few months basically sailing around the Nile together. As the story goes, they had this mad, passionate love affair that resulted in a son, Caesarion, or Little Caesar. That ensured that Caesar's line would rule Egypt without all that messy sieging and conquering. A lot of people are saying, well, God, Julius Caesar's mistress is a queen and he has a son who's going to be a king. What is he planning for us in Rome? Things take a turn in February at an annual Roman festival. Called the Festival of the Lupercal or the Lupercalia. This is an annual fertility rite in which the priests run through Rome wearing only loincloths and they're carrying goatskin straps and they whip people with them in a kind of mocking gesture. Anyways, this year, the festival is not just a fertility thing. It is also a festival of Caesar. And so at one point, Caesar is sitting in a prominent place. And his friend, the general Mark Antony, goes up to him and tries to put a diadem, a type of crown, on his head. It's a symbol of royalty. And Caesar refuses it. It seems like some kind of political stunt, maybe to address these rumors that Caesar wanted to be king. But it's too little, too late. People start saying, Caesar clearly wants to be king. So, a plot begins to assassinate him. This is where the fictional versions of the story tend to kick off. So the main players in the assassination plot, two of them are famous from Shakespeare. First of all, Marcus Brutus. Brutus is a scholar, a great orator. He's from a prominent Roman family. In fact, his ancestor helped depose that original king long ago. So Brutus is like Mr. Republic. He had a reputation for honesty and for being incorruptible. And... There was also a rumor that Brutus was actually Caesar's son. Yeah, so Caesar got around. <laughs> and in his younger years, he had had an affair with Servilia, who was Brutus's mother. The rumor was that Brutus was their love child. 
probably not true, but the rumor was there. Okay, so first member of the conspiracy, the maybe illegitimate love child, Brutus. The second member is Brutus's brother-in-law, a guy named Cassius. He's the guy who Shakespeare famously says is a lean and hungry look. Cassius is a general, a military man. Both he and Brutus had fought against Caesar in that civil war. But the third member of the assassination plot... This is one who is not so prominent in Shakespeare, is also named Brutus. His name is Decimus Brutus. But unlike the other two men, he actually was Caesar's ally in the civil war. So Decimus has Caesar's confidence. He's in Caesar's inner circle. And as kind of like a mole, he is able to report to the other conspirators what Caesar is thinking. So the love child, the general, and the mole. They call themselves the liberators. Because they think they're going to liberate Rome from the rule of a tyrant. The liberators decide that they are going to kill Caesar themselves, in public, at a Senate meeting. They also are kind of following what they believe is a historical script. So the legendary first king of Rome is a man named Romulus. We call it legendary. They wouldn't have thought of it as legendary. They thought it was historical fact. And part of the story of Romulus's life is that he goes too far and tries to concentrate too much power in his hands. And so the Roman senators step in and they kill him at a meeting of the Senate. And so the liberators, the assassins, see themselves as following in the footsteps of the oldest Roman traditions. Even at the time, this plan is the stuff of legend. And this is also the moment when modern legends about the assassination are at their most dramatic. In Shakespeare's version of the story, there is a soothsayer who tells Caesar this famous thing, beware the Ides of March. So did that really happen? Yes, it really did happen. The soothsayer, that's a fortune teller, didn't exactly say, beware the Ides of March. He did say, basically, Caesar, the next 30 days are not looking good for you. Watch out. And that was not Caesar's only warning. His wife, Calpurnia, was from a prominent political family. She was plugged in. And as this Senate meeting approached, she said, I really don't think you should go. And he finally agrees. He says he's not going to go. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And this was the day that the liberators had planned to kill him. And he says, no, I'm not going to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's all planned. Oh, my gosh. No, he's not going to go. It's going to ruin everything. So it's going to be foiled. And the liberators send Decimus Brutus to the rescue, the mole. Okay. The mole goes to Caesar's house, and he tells Caesar, you got to go to the Senate meeting. So escorted by Decimus, Caesar goes to the fatal Senate meeting. What happens? Well... There are over 60 conspirators. They don't all mob him. A small group of conspirators come to see him to present a petition. And at a given signal, one of them, who is close to him, pulls down Caesar's toga. And Caesar says, what? This is violence. The other conspirators pull their daggers from under their togas and start stabbing. And Caesar is fighting back. He is, after all, a soldier. He's a professional soldier his entire life. He's not just going to sit there. But they overpower him. 
The senators look on in complete horror and shock. Two of Caesar's allies try to get up to help Caesar, to save Caesar, but they're unable to do so. There are too many conspirators and they're too tightly around Caesar. In very short order, in a minute or a few minutes, they kill Caesar and he falls. In Shakespeare's version, this is where we get the most famous line. Et tu, Brute? You too, Brutus? Professor Strauss told us it didn't happen. He just kind of grunted and tried to save his life. But there's a rumor that he said something. Mm-hmm. He didn't say it, but here's the rumor. And the rumor's wonderful. It's, it's kind of like et tu, Brute. It's not in Latin. It's in Greek. Now, Greek for educated Romans was the equivalent of French for educated Americans. It is the language that uh, sophisticated people speak. <laughs> and so Caesar supposedly turned to Brutus and said, Kai su technon, you too, child. Which, according to the rumor, meant... You really are my son, and you have just murdered your father. You've committed patricide or parricide, the worst crime in the annals of Rome. And with that... The assassins have succeeded. Caesar lies dead. Everybody in Rome is scared out of their minds. People are locking themselves into their houses. Meanwhile, the conspirators march through the streets of Rome, brandishing their bloody daggers, crying out, Liberty! Caesar's body is taken away, and an autopsy is performed. It's actually the first autopsy that we have a record of. It finds that Caesar had 23 stab wounds, but only one, a chest wound, was fatal. Caesar's funeral was a massive public event. In the Shakespeare version, there's a famous speech by Mark Antony. It begins, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Antony does give a speech he kind of leads the audience like a cheerleader in a football game, saying, Caesar did this, and what do you think about the way he was treated? No, no, no. Furthermore, Antony had made a wax model of Caesar's body showing the wounds that he was given by the conspirators. And the purpose of this is to incite a riot. And there is a riot, and there is a murder. The wrong man is murdered. One of the men who assassinated Caesar is a politician named Cinna. But there's another guy named Cinna. He is a poet and a supporter of Caesar. And the crowd turns on the wrong Cinna. So it's a very ugly scene. Things only get uglier. In his will, Caesar has named his 18-year-old grand-nephew as his heir guy named Gaius Octavius. And Gaius Octavius is brilliant, unscrupulous, ambitious, and dynamic. And he goes on to stir up a war, which lasts for a long time and ultimately ends about 14 years later with him becoming the new Caesar, the new ruler of Rome. We know him as the Emperor Augustus. Cassius and Brutus are both defeated in this war, And they both kill themselves when they realize that their armies aren't going to win. Augustus takes power. Caesar gets his revenge from beyond the grave. The assassins are failures. I mean, they cause a lot of trouble. They put up a good fight, but they fail in the end. And Rome becomes a monarchy 
Augustus tries to hide the fact that he's a king. He learned from Caesar, not a great idea to call yourself a dictator. And the office of dictator is officially abolished. Instead, Augustus calls himself the first citizen. Oh man, that is some spin. So Caesar's legacy continues in Rome. And his story is told again and again, through the ages. Though maybe not in the way he would have wanted. For the American revolutionaries, for example, Cassius and Brutus are the heroes. And Caesar becomes the classic tyrannical dictator. Professor Strauss says it's actually more complicated than that. Caesar was, in many ways, the champion for ordinary people in Rome. The tragedy of the Romans is they couldn't somehow square the circle. They couldn't have a popular government that really looked after ordinary people while at the same time offering liberty and freedom of speech to those who wanted it. Brutus and Cassius didn't care that much about the Roman people. and Caesar didn't care about freedom of speech and freedom of thought. And that's the sad and complicated reality that was facing the Romans. And I think the literary stories often forget that. But at the same time, the true story is so literary. A classic tale of a giant brought low. Shakespeare says it. He bestrides the world like a colossus. The guy's conquered everyone and everything. He is such a genius. He's made a god. No one can stop him. And he is assassinated, killed like a dog in the Roman Senate. I mean, it's just such a sign of mortality, of, you know, the fate that awaits us. And then the fact that the liberators end up failing and Rome gets to be a monarchy anyhow. Wow. I mean, such a story. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on History Today. This podcast is produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.